Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode number 24 of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. My guest today is David Randall, who is a guitarist, producer, and composer. He has contributed to multi-million selling albums by Grammy Award-winning artist Dido, and has toured the world a number of times performing with UK dance act Faithless. His own critically acclaimed albums, released under the name Slovo, feature international collaborations with artists including Iceland's Emily Anna Torini, West Africa's Meiza, and U.S. jazz legend Max Roach. Dave was invited to appear alongside Baba Mal, Michael Stripe, the Maotella Queens, Nina Cherry, and others in the studio and on stage as part of the One Giant Leap project. Recently, he has toured with Sinead O'Connor, teamed up with big data artist Mike Ladd, clarinet player Carol Robinson, and drummer Dirk Rothburst to create the Paris-based improvising quartet Sleeping in Vilna, and contributed guitars to the stunning debut album from Nessie Gomes. He's currently performing live with Roland Gift from the Fine Young Cannibals. As well as making music, Dave has published numerous articles and given talks on the history of music and its role in society. His debut book, Sound System, The Political Power of Music, was published on Pluto Press in 2017. He was in Toronto for the Canadian Music Week conference this past spring, and I had a chance to sit down with him for a fascinating chat about music and politics. I hope you enjoy it. For links and a transcript, visit singdanceactthrive.com slash zero two four. Welcome to the show. Maybe introduce yourself and a little bit about your background and your career highlights. Okay. Uh, my name is Dave Randall. I'm a musician by trade. Um, I began my career touring with different bands, playing guitar. And now I produce and compose music. But most recently, I've um, been touring a book. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and that's what, that's what brings me to this festival. The book is about music and politics. It's called Sound System, the Political Power of Music. And uh, so I was here today speaking um, and then joining a panel in order to discuss precisely that subject, the ways in which music and politics converge and how music can be part of part of the project of trying to change the world. Right, right. And so when you were young, what what drew you to play guitar? Like pick up your first guitar, get into music? How did that happen? I guess a friend's older brother played guitar and, um, you know, it, it, I saw him playing and it seemed like a romantic thing to do. And uh, 
I also think that I said to my mum and dad that I wanted to learn the drums and they said, no way, too loud, too expensive. Right. How about guitar? So, um, you know, it was partly romance, partly pragmatism, like most things in life, I, I suppose. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's something that started to make sense of my life when I was in my early teens. And, um, and, you know, I became a professional guitarist when I was 23. So it ended up changing my life. In what way? How did, how did you get started? Well, it became my job. I mean, yeah. you know, as opposed to having to do some sort of other job. So, so that was a... Was there was, ever anything else you wanted to do? Uh, well, I w- you know, I would have got on with doing other things to pay the bills. I don't want to sort of make out as if I had some special God-given calling. I think um, people who make that claim are often exaggerating. Uh, but I was certainly very happy to become a touring guitarist. It's something that I have enjoyed and continue to enjoy, you know, 25 years on. Yeah, yeah. And what was your first big break in, as a guitarist? Is it Faithless was the first thing you did? Or? Yeah, that was the first break, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're living it, it just seems like um, a series of incremental steps. You know, you sort of go from a, a bad unsigned band to a much better unsigned band and then to a semi-professional band and then, you know... Um, then you've been asked to play on somebody's record and that takes you into a professional studio. And that's how it was for me. I was, I was working on a record for a singer songwriter called Pauline Taylor. And she was at the same time as making her own record, she was doing a few backing vocals for the first Faithless record. And so when Faithless had a hit initially with the song Salva Maya, but then more significantly the song Insomnia, so this is a long time ago now. I'm going back to about 96, I suppose. Um, the producer of that first record scooped up all the you know, halfway competent musicians who were hanging around the studio and uh, put us together in a band and off we went to promote the Faithless record. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the, yeah, I guess that was the big break. Yeah. And when you would go on tour with, with them, like how long were the tours? Oh, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, particularly intense when you hear about some bands who leave home and don't don't come back for six months but we would be we would be off for a couple of weeks and then back for a couple of days and off again for i suppose the standard tour cycle you know about 12 to 18 months yeah um but the nice thing about those early tours were that the big singles were house music singles even though it's a live band and even though i'm a guitarist they were known on the kind of the electronic and dj scene and uh the good thing about that is that we were being flown to countries that, I don't know, I think it's the countries that it takes other artists quite a long time to reach. Right. But dance music went global fairly early on. I mean, or at least fairly global. So in the first couple of years of touring, we, you know, we went to the US, to South Africa, to Russia, to Japan. And, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah. And what was it that first got you more politically active? Well, in terms of global politics, I have to acknowledge the impact of a song called Free Nelson Mandela by the Special AKA. It was written by a guy called Jerry Dammers from the Specials and it became an important anti-apartheid anthem when I was a kid in Britain. And um, when I heard that song for the first time, I was probably about 14 at a festival 
And I had no idea who Nelson Mandela was, but, um, but I knew by the end of the first chorus that I wanted him to become free. So, so it had a big impact on me. And um, I, so I, I went away and did some research. And um, I suppose that was one of, the, one of the things that first politicized me. And then when you start touring, I mean, you know, you have conversations with people and see places. And if you're halfway interested in other people's lives and cultures and so on, then political questions come up. And I, I always found them interesting. Yeah. And I was uh, listening to your audio book. Oh, uh, thank so you. Listening, I think I listened to most of it. I uh-huh. think I was almost finished. Um, so you had some great stories in there about how your politics affected the management of Faithless oh. when they were trying to get sponsorship deals and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it, yes. What you're referring to was a period, a slightly difficult period, really, towards the end of my days touring with Faithless. So we're talking about the 2010-2011 tour. And I had been asked to uh, publicly advocate Palestinian calls for a cultural boycott of Israel because, um, you know, that was a question that we had been forced to examine. The band Faithless had been forced to think long and hard about this. We are a band who have played in Israel a couple of times, but who subsequently decided that we couldn't ignore the call from Palestinian civil society to impose a boycott until the Israeli government, you know, stopped breaking international laws and, and stopped subjecting Palestinians to these dreadful conditions in the West Bank and in Gaza and, uh, and indeed apartheid policies in Israel itself. So we looked into the issues, decided to, to boycott. But I suppose I became, because of my political contacts, I became the most um, prominent um, person in the band associated with that particular political cause and management didn't like it i mean it's a controversial one of course i mean i think mainly that they didn't they they didn't like it because the actual offer on the table to go and play in tel aviv was was probably very very good you know i I think um he was primarily worried about the 20 percent he was missing out on right but um, but i think more broadly than that he was worried that a position like the one that i advocated then and continue to advocate that we should indeed take a principled stand against the uh, activities of the Israeli government. I think he felt that that might damage brand faithless. And so you're absolutely right. I sort of, I was sat down and given a bit of a slap on the wrists. Um, and of course it didn't, it didn't stop me from continuing to speak out, but uh, it did, it did cause a bit of a rift in our relationship, which never really healed. Did it ever cause a rift with the band members? No, because most of them agreed with me. All of them except one, actually. Right. Admittedly, that one band member is a leading band member and it's not Maxi Jazz. So fans of Faithless can figure out who I'm talking about. But um, uh, Maxi supported me and agreed with me and, and uh, pretty much the whole of the, rest of the rest of the band did. So no, the band supported me, but they were also... The regular band members, as opposed to the band leaders, right. were nervous really about supporting me too openly. They were nervous about going up against management. You see, a lot of bands operate under a fairly corporate model. And the regular musicians, even though we all look like equals on stage, the regular musicians are nervous about upsetting management, upsetting the leaders and getting replaced. the sack. Yeah, yeah, they could be replaced. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do after you left Faithless? 
Oh, well, I, I um, you know, continued to, to work. I went out with Sinead O'Connor uh, on a sort of 18 months tour and, uh, who was it after that? You know, I, I continued to be a guitarist and make records and make music. Um, but at some point towards the end of, uh, where are we now? The, the noughties. Yeah. No, not the noughties. The one am I talking about towards the end of the, of that, those few years, um, I had this idea of trying to put down all my thoughts into this book that, uh, finally was published two years ago. So, um, so yeah, and, and that's really still where I'm at. You know, I, I continue to work as a guitarist. I write my own music, but I also um, have really enjoyed talking about uh, the book. I enjoyed writing it. It's been fun promoting it. And, uh, you know, I, I think I might have a, have a go at writing another. Yeah. We'll see. That's cool. So you think that's kind of where your future is or will you always balance the two, music? And- I probably always balance the two. I mean, I know that some people would consider... Uh, doing a number of things at the same time to be, uh, you know, like like you're a jack of all trades and you should really focus on one thing and try to excel. But this comes up a lot on my podcast. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, I am multi passionate. Yeah, yeah, great. And, great. Uh, you know, that's so. I suspect that you and I share a perspective then that actually for artists like us or creative people like us, it. It's, it's a really great thing to do different things. It's, yeah. um, you know, uh, my experiences writing the book and all the things that that's brought to my life have fed and enhanced and enriched my music. So I'm making yeah. an album at the moment and that, um, that's a better album because of the experiences I've had because of the book and vice versa. You know, these things I think complement each other. That's my personal view. Yeah, yeah. I'm always on a quest of knowledge. I'm always, if I do come yeah, up with great. something new I want to do I'm great. like 100% um, great. so I, I feel like maybe you were like that when you started to get into politics and writing the book and things like that you did a lot of research I did a lot of research I really enjoyed doing the research but um, but you know I should make it clear that the thing that motivates me most of all is not some sort of intellectual curiosity uh, or academic knowledge or anything like that it's a desire to actually change Change. this shitty world and you know this world where i see so many great people including some friends of mine and certainly neighbors of mine living lives that are um so so sort of so so much uh less fulfilled and so much so much smaller than than they should be if you know what i mean they i think that people with great talent and potential are completely passed by if they don't fit into a very certain they don't fit between very narrow parameters, you know, yeah. and, um, and so, I, you know, I suppose I should try and be more specific. I, you know, I just see a lot of potential wasted for all sorts of reasons, be that prejudices, you know, racism and sexism and uh, homophobia or whatever, you know, narrow mindedness, I think, uh, means that life is tougher for a lot of people than, than it ought to be. Uh, but even, you know, even, even, even a bunch of, you know, white men who live near me, working class white men, you know, they too just have, have lives which are hard and, um, which are, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, but forgive me, I won't go on for long, but, but we found out that in working class areas, life expectancy has fallen for the first time in Britain has fallen for the first time in, um, well, I don't know, generations, 
largely because of political decisions taken by the government, austerity politics I'm talking about in particular. Now, this is unacceptable and unnecessary. So, so really what makes me interested in politics is a sense of anger about the um, disparity between the way the world is and the way the world could be. Yeah, yeah. Do you find it's changing? Because I feel like there's been a shift in the last few years um, with artists speaking out more on racism and all the different issues. Do you think that artists have an obligation to speak out? Um, I think that all people have an obligation to to treat other human beings with respect. But no, I don't think artists in particular have a special obligation. I think it's up to the artist. I think the first obligation that artists have is to sort of, to be authentic and try to produce art that's worthwhile, you know, whether or not it's overtly political. Uh, The great Russian revolutionary Trotsky said, I believe, he said that um, art should first and foremost be judged as art. In other words... It's, it's no matter how on point your politics are, if the, if the song stinks, forget about it. You're not going to persuade anyone about the, the political argument. So I think it's important to try and make art work in a way uh, that moves other people. And that won't necessarily be political with a, with a capital P at least. But if you are someone who, like me, is interested in these sorts of questions, then you certainly shouldn't Uh, hold back you know I I would encourage people who do want to talk about political issues in their music or their art to do so I think uh, if it's something you want to do then then you should do it yeah stand up for it yeah and 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 by doing that my experience has been that you meet the right people so yes you might alienate one corporate minded music manager so what you know uh, you meet a whole bunch of other people who um, encourage you and who who introduce you to others and before you know it you're having a chat here in in toronto you know miles from home and uh, and you know how wonderful is that this has all come for me through um being interested in and trying to be authentic to to you know the things that that move me and and matter to me so so yeah don't get don't self-censor don't get hung up on this idea that the moment you speak out your career is gonna you know collapse i I don't think that's true especially now because the appetite for for political discussion has grown exponentially with um with this sense that we're living in such confusing times. So, uh, yeah, it's go also for it. Artists have a little bit more control over their career now too, because you don't necessarily have to depend on a major label or manager. If you do the work, you can manage yourself and release yourself. So you have a little bit more freedom maybe now. Yeah, you have more freedom, although making money is still very difficult yeah. without uh, mainstream uh, contacts of one sort or another. You know, I think it's a bit of a myth that just because the internet exists that we can all kind of have independent careers. You know, you still need a driver. You still need something that drives listeners to your music. So you still need, you know, something that's going to be shared on social media like a great video. Well, that costs money. Yeah. Or you need airplay. And, well, that doesn't necessarily cost money, but, it, you know, for, uh, there are a lot of professional pluggers who will be trying to get ahead of you in the queue with the thing that they've been paid by the yeah uh, by the record label to plug so so it's still tough out there but you're right though if, if you're if you're smart and you're 
uh, innovative and, and so on, there are ways that you can bypass the old the old gatekeepers. Yeah, and I've worked a lot in uh, personal branding, and that's kind of what I'm coaching artists on too, is to really figure out who you are yeah. and what you stand for, and then let's try and figure out how to incorporate that into you your brand of what you do, yeah. how, how you present your music, how you dress, how you, what you say on stage kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think that, I think that's right. I suppose there might be one or two kind of DIY punk or left leaning artists who sort of don't like the idea of branding themselves in the first place. But, but, but I agree with you. I mean, we could change the word brand for distilling your message, you Just know, being yourself, being yourself and being, and making it clear to other people, uh, who that is. You know, so yeah. sort of, you know, because I, I think people are pulled in so many different directions by so many different distractions nowadays. Yeah. You don't want to make it difficult for them. Do you, you want to make it clear. This is who I am. Yeah. This is what I'm here to do. A lot of artists want us appeal to everyone my music for everyone everyone will love it yeah and it's like unless you kind of narrow it down yeah i think it's best to narrow it down i mean i remember the japanese novelist haruki murakami saying that um it's much better to be loved by 10 percent and you know have 90 percent who dislike you or who, who are completely indifferent to you it's better to have that than 80 percent of people quite like you Right. You know, go for the 10% who love you. Yeah. Go, go, you know, you, you get his point. You know, it, it, be yourself, find your people and, um, and enjoy that. Don't try and appeal to, to everyone because, I don't know, I think, it, that, I think that's a very difficult road to want to wanna go down. Yeah, yeah. Any uh, cool takeaways from the panel that you did earlier? Um, cool well, conversations <laughs> with your fellow panelists. I had an invitation to go to South Africa. That's a pretty cool takeaway, isn't That's it? That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I'm really lucky to have been there before. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I went there with Faithless a couple of times. But um, um, no, I mean, in terms of ideas, there were some wonderful um, things that came up. I mean, I'm talking about other panelists. I, I think one of the most interesting uh, political discussions that's relatively new to me is the discussion around uh, the rights of indigenous people and uh, and and the story of how they have been treated in this country. Because, of course, in Britain, although we have a dreadful, horrific, blood-soaked colonial past, what we don't have is uh, the experience of being a colonial settler state right. and having to... Uh, reconcile ourselves with with that yeah so that's something i'm learning about while i'm here in canada i'm learning too because my client kelly frazier um she's from nunavut and i'm learning from her i had her yeah, on the podcast right. and i was like so fascinated she's right. a very, very smart woman but she's very active Great. in pr- protecting her culture Great. and educating us yeah. you know who don't know yeah so yeah i'm learning about all that now too yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Where can people find you online? Um, well, you can find me in, in several places. I suppose for my music, go to randallmusic.net. Uh, but if you're interested in the book, which I hope your listeners will be, just uh, search for Sound System, The Political Power of Music by Dave Randall. And it should be available from, you know, all the usual places. And, uh, and there's a Facebook group as well if, if you use Facebook. 
um, facebook.com slash sound system book. And I kind of keep that updated with events and uh, thoughts and so on. Oh, cool. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Oh, sure thing. Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers. 